Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Interlude Podcast. You are listening to episode 124, A Conversation with Erin Perkins. Erin is a mom of two, a wife, a writer, and at the age of 34, she was diagnosed with triple negative breast cancer in January 2021. She underwent treatment with chemotherapy and a bilateral mastectomy, and then she made the decision to go flat. She shares about that decision and how she had to learn to advocate for herself in that space, which can be hard to do. We talk a lot about life after cancer and survivorship. We talk about her writing and the work that she is doing with Wildfire, as well as Elephants and Team. And Erin is working on her book as well. She shares about parenting both during active cancer treatment and beyond and provides a lot of resources for parents in similar situations. This was a really wonderful conversation. And with that, it is my honor to welcome Erin Perkins to the Interlude Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Eleanor Toplinski, and I am a board-certified medical oncologist specializing in the treatment of breast and gynecologic cancers. I started the Interlude podcast as a way to share the journeys and experiences of women who are going through cancer. On this podcast, we talk about anything and everything related to the cancer journey, the treatment, and life after cancer. As a reminder, the information discussed on this podcast is not meant to serve as medical advice. Any specific medical questions should be directed to your healthcare team. Erin, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Can you start by telling us a little bit about yourself, your story? Yeah. Um, yeah, my name's Erin Perkins. I am a mom. I have two kids, a daughter and a son, and I've been married about 11 years. Um, and I was diagnosed with triple negative breast cancer um, in January, 2021. So I'm excited because I'm hitting my two year mark really soon. That's awesome. Um, yeah. And, uh, so, uh, after chemo, I had a, um, double mastectomy. I decided to stay flat. Um, and I feel really comfortable with that choice. I got a really sweet tattoo over my, um, scars that I'm excited about. <laughs> Uh, I like to write. I've been um, writing with um, Wildfire magazine and Elephants and Tea magazine since diagnosis. And uh, I've got a blog and a sub stack and I'm trying to write a book. Yeah. So I don't work. Those are my jobs, kids and writing. <laughs> well, that's, that is that yeah. is work for sure. Um, so I want to hear I want to hear about the writing and all of the work that you're doing with Wildfire and Elephants and Tea. Both are in incredible organizations, especially for the young adult community. Yeah. But tell me a little bit more about your decision to go flat. And one of the things that I hear from people on social media is that one, they they didn't really know it was an option. You know, no one talked to them about it or they felt like they brought it up and people were like, well, are you sure you want to do this? Are you going to regret it? You know, what about later? So can you talk about your decision and any external pressures that you may or may not have faced? Yeah. So I, um, I don't know, for me, it just felt kind of like, uh, I knew I didn't really want to have any kind of object or an object in my body. Actually, when I was diagnosed and making that decision I had like three friends um it was like a friend another friend and a friend's mom who were all experiencing breast implant illness at the time which I know is not like it doesn't happen to everyone it's not something for everyone to be afraid of but for me I was just like I hate surgery I hate anything like medical and shots and whatever so I was like I don't want to risk anything else going on you know and and um so the best way to do that was to stay flat. I mean, again, there's the fat grafting and all that. But it, what I'm saying is I really dislike the idea of all the different sutures and all the different, you know. And so um, 
I don't know. I had heard of aesthetic flat closure a little bit. Again, this was, I was making this decision in um, like July, 2021. And it was like starting to be more on social media, you know? Um, but what's funny is I didn't know exactly what it meant or how to ask for it. Uh, so I said the words to my surgeon, who's really great um, young surgeon. And uh, she said, of course, yeah. And she didn't fight me. She didn't, wasn't weird about it. The only thing there was like a little back and forth on was why I was doing a double, you know? It's like, are you sure you want to do a double? And for me, I just felt like, yeah, because my, I was really young. I was 34 when I was diagnosed, dense breast, like grade C density. And then with the triple negative, I don't have the G, any genes um, mm. or anything, but I just felt like how I wasn't sure if I could handle like having risk in the other, but I like in flat also, I like the idea that if I had a lump, I would be able to see it, you know, yeah. like it can't hide, where could it hide? And so um, that was cool to me and, and the motivator. And so I presented to her the aesthetic flat closure and she said, okay, well, then she did the surgery. And I think it's just not something that she's done a lot of times. Um, and, you know, if you're doing expanders or if you're doing you're, like expanders in the hopes of getting implants or um, even for grafting, they leave like extra skin because it doesn't matter, you know, like, uh, so what happened to me is I started going like, she left this extra, like, not even like, there's a little bit of dog ears. Um, it's not bad at all in the back, which she told me might happen and they don't bother me. But in the front, it was almost like little pockets of like lumpy fat. And, um, I was like a little scared it was breast tissue. She assured me it wasn't. But at the same time, I'm like, I don't think this is aesthetic flat closure. I think this is flat and you didn't know what I meant, you know? So I just, you know, went to her and I said, hey, I'm, I, no offense to you at all. Like, I appreciate you so much, but I think I need to make this flatter. And I just wondered, do you want to do it? Or how do I get, who do I ask <laughs> instead, you know? And she was so kind and she was like, oh, of course I'll do it, you know? And um, so I did have to have a second surgery, which they called a, or I wanted to, you know, they called it a mastectomy scar revision. And now it's completely flat. You know, there's no like, you know, lumpies, mm -hmm. which it, I'm way happier with. So, and the recovery from it, they cut, she cut like half the scar again, um, and it was a pretty simple recovery. No, no, um, what's it called? Drains. And was it hard to have that conversation with your surgeon? A lot of people, you know, are not happy for whatever reason, but are nervous mm -hmm. about having that conversation. Or did you just say, no, I'm going to advocate for myself and this is what I need and this is what I want. Yeah, I think uh, by this point, I was just very, I, I'm, I'm an advocate by nature. That's like what I do in a lot of areas. But um, I think I didn't know how to advocate for myself in breast cancer until I got deeper into it and then learned more and more. And so by this point, you know, I'd already done chemo because triple negative, you, you often do it first. And um, I just gotten more comfortable um, with saying what I needed and I knew that like that feeling that many of us get when uh, we have to go through this and decide different things, even if you get implants, you still look at yourself and you're different than you were, you know? Um, and we have to, we have to like what we see to the best that we can control, you know? And, um, and I knew that, and I knew like to move on, I really needed it to look the way I was hoping it to look, you know? Um, and so I was, I was like just really passionate and um I remember how many times I told her I was sorry because I felt bad like she's such a great surgeon you know and I think she just didn't know exactly what aesthetic flat closure was so I, I also hope that now she knows more you know about it for the next person and I, I think just a couple of thoughts as you're saying this you know one of the reasons that I love you know if you have the option between giving, if you have to have chemo and if you have the option between doing it before surgery, after surgery, 
you know, if there's no downside to one approach or another, I always prefer the upfront neoadjuvant approach for this very reason, because it gives people time to do their research and to talk to others and to really make an educated decision, because otherwise you really have to make, if you're having surgery first, you have to make a decision in a week, so fast. not even, yeah. um, and you just don't have time to sit with it and, and process Right. And I know people, I know people who've had to do that. And it's like, so jarring for me. I'm, I am grateful in in my situation and people that have like their surgeons just say, just get the expanders. Cause then you can decide later. And then their expander fails and they're like regretting that they got the, and it's like, but you just have you're on this roller coaster ride of like Mm -hmm. chaotic information that you've never heard before that you have to sort out. And it's just like, yeah, I agree that having this space is really nice. And so after you had chemotherapy, you had surgery, what was the treatment after that point? Well, um, I was 2% estrogen positive. Um, so of course they treat me triple negative, but that was kind of like hard for me because I'm like, why do I have this 2% and what should I do with it? And so my oncologist is really great. And she said, you know, um, there's, you can't, there's not studies. You can't, there's nowhere you can look to say it'll help you this much, but if you have some estrogen, then if you want to fight it, you can, and I'm sure it'll do something, you know? So we agreed, uh, I could try tamoxifen, um, and then, and then decide if the risk and benefit of it weighed out. I made it six months. And then I was like, I mean, it's 2% and there's no research. So it stopped. I think a lot of people, I mean, I do the same thing with people, you know, we have the conversation and I try it and it, yeah. it's hard because there is no research. And so if you're sitting there faced with all these side effects and hot flashes and mood changes and waking for a benefit that probably doesn't, if exists, yeah. low, it's, it's a hard decision yeah. Because with tamoxifen, normally it's like they want you to have at least 10% estrogen, so right? Used to be studies. used to be all the older studies, if you were 10%, you were positive. And so if you were less than 10%, okay. you were negative. And so all of our really all of our early studies with tamoxifen, because we're not doing they're not doing now studies to look at benefit of tamoxifen. That's been like well established. Most of those studies are for people that were 10%. So that's where she's, there's no data. A couple of mm-hmm about it maybe I want to say like 10 years ago or some somewhere around there they revised the statistics so it was if you were one percent you were positive but again the older studies don't reflect that so same thing mm-hmm. when we look at benefit and risk we don't we're really in that no data zone which I think is probably the hardest to be in mm-hmm. yeah that makes sense and so you stopped tamoxifen mm-hmm. and did you have radiation or no radiation? Oh yeah. Good question. Yeah. I had to choose, which was real fun. Like that was really hard. Actually, the thing I chose was, um, at, because my tumor was 2.6, 3.6 centimeters. Um, and it was not in my lymph nodes. And so, um, you know, usually with five, centimeters or more they recommend radiation no matter what or that's what they do at my thing so I was I mean kind of close right so that kind of freaked me out and um so when I was deciding mastectomy basically I sat with a radiation oncologist he sat with me for an hour and a half answering every question I had um just totally immersed in my situation and we ended up deciding together that like um because I, I said, well, you know, he didn't make the decision, but when I made my decision, he said, okay, if you do the mastectomy, um, he was off, like radiation was on the table if I did lumpectomy, but it went away mm-hmm. if I did mastectomy, yep. basically. And so I didn't like that because I'm like, I didn't want to do radiation, but I also really wanted all the treatment, you know? Um, and so he said, if I didn't achieve pathology complete response at surgery for a mastectomy, he would, um, I think it was like petition with me for, for my insurance to cover radiation. Um, so, but I got, I got PCR, so, um, we just let it go. Yeah, no. And I think the five centimeters is a really standard 
cut off again there's always situations and exceptions and but that's that is the standard so a, a mm. kind of a challenging question to ask you know you were diagnosed before immunotherapy was approved for triple negative just seconds before if yeah. you do that and it's crazy one of the things like you know you you had a pathologic complete response which we know is kind of you know really really great and really important um but do you feel when it was approved, knowing that you didn't get it, how did that make you mm-hmm. feel? Yeah, that was a bummer for sure. <laughs> Cause it was like approved maybe while I was like yeah, almost it was, done with chemo. It was approved right at the summer of 2021. So it must've been. Yeah. So I finished that. chemo yeah. July 9th, 2021. I think it was like, end so of it was like, so it was yeah. literally right there, right there at the end. Yeah. So actually so there's a lot of a lot to it that question because I um, was offered a clinical trial. I always forget this part because it didn't work out um, at the beginning of my diagnosis. Uh, that was a maybe, like it was like you might not qualify mm-hmm. because um, they needed to send my pathology or whatever it's called over to their lab and check it again um, for um, the receptor status which then I was like in this crazy world of like, wait, the receptor status could be off by a point. That's like, that changes everything, you know? But um, so the problem there was when they were doing that, it was January, 2021. And there was some kind of uh, snowstorm that like made it. So my, my slides couldn't get over. Like I signed the contract for the clinical trial, everything, which you can, you know, then retract if you need to. So basically I was, coming up against a month from um, diagnosis to needing chemo. And I knew that my triple negative was aggressive. So then the slides weren't getting over there to get checked. And I was like, I can't wait. I know I can't wait. And so we, you know, did away with the trial. The reason I'm talking about the trial is it was another immunotherapy trial. And it was a double blind trial where if I didn't have PDL one or whatever, mm-hmm. then I was going to get a placebo. It's like really neat, neat trial. I don't even know what it was called. I can't remember, but um, anyway, so that happened before and then Keytruda was approved and I asked for Keytruda, but they couldn't approve it because it was only approved for metastatic or something at the time. Mm, I don't know. So yeah, I think even, even not, I didn't get carboplatin and, and I remember just going like, okay, why not? Like where, like, just give me every drug that everyone gets, you know, like, um, but the carboplatin I think is because of the lymph node status, but yeah, I mean, I, I had a really hard time with that. I spent a lot of time talking to my, um, friends at TNBC thrivers, you know, we have these like meetings where we talk through, um, everything together and everyone just helps, you know, with, uh, all of our fears and regrets and everything. But I think having the PCR really helps me because then I go, okay, if I hadn't achieved that and I hadn't got Keytruda, that would bother me more, you know? Yeah. So, and I'm excited, you know, in a weird way that like, if I ever had a recurrence, I haven't tried it yet. So that's good news. Yeah, Yeah, I know. I mean, I think it's hard because things get, you know, approved and the people who came before that, didn't get it right and and we see that as the field advances I mean we talk about getting breast cancer today is a lot different than it was in 2000 2010 I mean even a year ago right with in triple negative so it just Mm -hmm. you can always wonder like how it makes people feel when they kind of were just at the cusp of of that happening yeah so talk Mm -hmm. to me about life after cancer and the writing that you're doing and what kind of the healing has been like? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I I also am um, on the board of directors for the Young Breast Cancer Project. So that's pretty cool too. Like um, just getting to meet up with other survivors to do something about it. You know, um, we're trying to uh, push breast health education for young people because, and that's like my passion because that's where I was, you know, I was like, I didn't know. So I waited to go into the doctor because I didn't think it was anything, you know, Mm -hmm. and I didn't have that education um, 
to go back to. And so I'd love to spread that around to people so they can know um, what their normal is and what to look for and not ignore it and know how to say to their doctor, like if their doctor tries to tell them to come back in six months, that they would say no way, you know, but we just didn't, we didn't know before and we need that education. So I really love um, Young Breast Cancer Project for that. Um, so be, that said, with that and with writing, um, I've done um, April Stern's writing workshops with Wildfire. She's given so many really helpful prompts to write off gonna, of. I'm just going to interrupt and say if anyone's listening and is not familiar with Wildfire April, definitely, definitely check her out because she does some incredible, incredible work. And it's the writing workshops seem phenomenal. Yeah. They're little cohorts um, that you can join. And it's actually, that's how I found out about Young Breast Cancer Project, because I was in a cohort with Missy Peters, who founded mm -hmm. it. Um, but she, April Stearns also, with Wildfire, also does um, little, like, free ones once in a while. So you can, like, kind of see what it is. But the prompts are really, I mean, they drew out so much for me that I couldn't, it's hard because there's so much to unpack about this experience that you don't always know um, how to get it out. So her having those prompts really, really has helped me. And, um, and then I sort of came up with the thought that when I was in early diagnosis as a young mom, um, that I felt overwhelmed, like having to go to the internet for all of my helps, like even not just Google, cause that sucks, but like all that, all the organisms, there's so many great yeah. things and then you have to find them. And it's sort of like when you're depressed, because I mean, I was depressed then, <laughs> where you're like, you're depressed and it's like, you need a therapist, but you have to like research to find the therapist. And you're like, I'm tired. How about I go back to bed? So um, same kind of thing with this. Like I, I needed to find places for support and I did, but that's kind of a skill set of mine that I have where like, even now, friends of mine will get diagnosed and I'll tell them, do you know about this? Do you know about it? They don't know about it. So I find them. That's my thing. But so I wanted to compile sort of a resource guide, but with my writing style, which is like um, very and my lifestyle, and my writing style are similar. It's just like, let me sit with you however I can sit with you, you know. And so the book I'm writing, I'm calling a friend in book form. So it's like if your friend who went through this is sitting next to you and helping you understand what's happening as it's happening. So you can kind of reference if, if something is, cause another thing that would happen is sometimes it would be too overwhelming. Like I had to unfollow certain people on Instagram because they were talking about so many things. And I was just like, I can't hear this, you know? Yeah. And, but sometimes that's helpful. Like now it's helpful, but in early diagnosis, you're kind of like, in, you know, crawling through like the sludge of everything and trying to understand a new language, you know? Um, so it's very like layman's terms and like supportive. And it tells like some of my stories, it explains, it's for women di or people diagnosed under age 45 specifically, because that's what I was. And the idea is like, there's so many uh, like different challenges that we have. Um, that uh, women diagnosed older may not experience the same like job insecurity or insurance problems or fertility issues or, um, you know, being single. Um, and then for me, I my thing was I'm a young mom. Um, I was done having kids, thank God, but I was nursing and I had to stop because of cancer. You know, luckily my son was older, um, but and, and then just the fact that you have to go through all these things and then like try to raise kids, you know, like, like yeah. it's a lot. It's a lot. Um, so, yeah, so that's the writing is therapeutic for me. It's also like a way to be there for other people, which is like what I like to do anyways. So, yeah, well, I think it's going to be a great, great resource and a great book when it's published. So hopefully soon. Right. Or we don't know yet. Yeah. I I don't know. I mean, I have a, a connection with a friend who's who's a um, published author who's said he would send it to his agent 
So nowadays you have to find a literary agent first. Yeah, it's, it's before... not like it's the hard, one of the hardest things, which is I think why a lot of people are going yeah. down like the self. I know I've talked to a lot of people going down the self-publishing route because yeah. like the, the traditional route is like impossible. It's very tricky. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm pursuing it for a little while. Uh, meantime, if, if I meet a, uh, a person newly diagnosed that's got a lot of questions I send them my stuff anyway um and then later on if I don't get published I'm just going to publish it well I have faith you will publish it the way that you wanted to and the way that it should happen thanks yeah (laughs) so how old were your kids when you were diagnosed yeah so my son was two years old and five months uh, which is a long time to nurse, but he, I knew I wasn't going to have any more kids mm-hmm. and it was hard to stop. Like, I, and so I, in my head, I'm like, I'll stop when he's three. <laughs> but, uh, uh, yeah. So he was still nursing quite a bit. And, um, my daughter was six and a half when I was diagnosed. Yeah. And so, um, now they're four and eight. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. you know, obviously your son was too little to understand much of what was going on but what about your daughter yeah so my daughter is um she has the gift of anxiety I gave it to her (laughs) uh and she's really really smart and so I read about it a lot and um I I found the bright spot network I think a little late but the first thing I found was mighty and bright everything has bright in it mighty and bright co with Sarah she has a lot of um resources and um, had talked about like, like if we ignore the fact that we have cancer and, and aren't telling our kids that they might fabricate what's going on and like, it might be worse for them. Not always, I mean, you have to know your kid, right? But for me, I knew that was true. Like once I heard it, I'm like, oh, she will definitely create a world where this is worse than it is, you know? Um, And so I just told her like pretty, simply you know and the book I read her that helped a lot was called um mom and the polka dot boo-boo I think I've heard of that I think have you heard that one Mm -hmm. yeah so um she thought it was funny which is good uh because (laughs) the mom was bald and um and then she thought that was funny and then she was excited because in the book it talks about like when everything's over we'll have a party so she like started planning the party, like we're going to have a, you know, and I did, I remembered her, her requests and we did them. It was, we had like a unicorn um, pinata and stuff. Love it. Uh, you know what? I think yeah. it's really important. I mean, talk, you know, being honest with your kids. So they always talk to, you know, patients about how, you know, our kids are always listening and, you know, right. very often they've heard of someone else maybe dying from cancer, like an old relative, you know, an elderly relative. Mm-hmm. And if we're not, you know, I always tell people be honest, but always stress, like if you can, um, you know, is that me, you know, you're going to be okay. And if, if you're not going to be okay, but how, you know, how to phrase it in a way that they're not associating cancer with, you know, what they've heard in the past, Right. You know, it's more they they need a way to know your specific situation is different, you know, than what they've, you know, seen. Um, but it's it's hard and kids are kids are so in tune with that. Yes. And and that's the thing. My daughter is like the most in tune, like she'll be somewhere else in the house and she'll, she hears everything you say and she mm-hmm. will come out and talk about it you know like my husband and I can't even like plan dinner without her like interjecting and they they have this the memory the the craziest memories that like you can't even like oh they won't remember this yeah no she remembers everything yeah so um and what about your son (laughs) yeah I feel like I mean so actually he I mean he's very attached to me uh and I think like I considered him a lot when I was deciding about radiation um, because even though it's only, you know, a month long or whatever it is, it's every day. Right. I mean, it's not a long time every day, but for his little two-year-old brain, me leaving every day is so hard. Like 
he had such a hard time with me going to chemo and when he had to go away when I had I like made my I asked somebody to take him for like a week after the mastectomy because he was he's very head buddy and like elbow to stomach and like I was just like oh my gosh she's gonna hurt me so bad but we were so like close that it was really hard for him when I had to go anywhere so I just thought about leaving every single day and how like hard that would be so that was he was one of my considerations with because I had the choice you know I was like here's one of the way weigh-ins one of the cons you know did you find that he kind of was more attached to you because of the diagnosis you know because again kids can sense right like things are happening Mm -hmm. sometimes they tend to become even more attached to one parent I think so yeah I think so and um he did really well weaning from nursing like really fast but yeah I, I think I don't know. I think because we nursed so long and then because I went through that, he's very like attached in, in some ways it's good. Like some of the parts are really good. I think the, there's a word like attunement or something that I think him and I have that me and my daughter don't have. Um, so I'm grateful for that, but, um, yeah, it is hard. Even if now, if I'm like trying to go out to dinner with a friend or something, (laughs) they both like freak out, (laughs) which is, sort of normal, but also I think they've got a little more fear in there, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, I, it's so fascinating to me, right. How kids brains work and obviously not my area of expertise at all, but just as a mom and seeing even Mm -hmm. like when I go away for a conference, when I come back, you know, they're different, like, even if I'm gone for just a few days, it's, it's so fascinating how, because what they know is so, you know, is little and different and right. Yeah, we forget too. We forget that. <laughs> and what does life look like now? So you're what a year, two well, two years out from diagnosis and a year and a half of chemo and surgery. How do you feel compared to you know compared to pre-cancer and even that acute treatment phase? Yeah, I mean, I I feel uh, physically well. I'm very lucky that. Nothing has presented itself as a issue um, uh, after treatment. Um, yeah, I have, I'm active. I was active before and during, um, not during AC. If you have AC, <laughs> you can't be active. That's okay. You know, um, I was alive. I lived. Yep. That's, you do what you, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But um but I mean, I, and I've heard that, like, some of the drugs that don't affect your stomach as much or whatever, if you can become, if you can stay active, it can help your yep. joints mm-hmm. not have as much whatever. So, yeah, I really feel like um, it's all pretty good. Um, and I try to stay active. I I try to do the 150 minutes a day. I mean, week. That would be good. That would be, that would be a lot. <laughs> I don't have time for that. I don't know anyone who does. But um, I actually put yeah. something a while ago, and I said 150 minutes, and I just kind of assumed it meant per week. Like I, I don't think oh, I could try it. I just yeah. And everyone's like, a day? I can't do it. I mean, I was like, no, no, stop! I'm not asking you to exercise for two and a half hours a day. Uh, no, insane. Yeah, it's a lot. Yeah, so I, I do try, but my main, I try to be very like gentle on my like you know, give grace to myself, like, because I mean, in the young survivor group, uh, you find many people, I don't know the statistics, but you know, a lot of people haven't had kids yet and some of them want to, and will try and hopefully they can. Um, and uh, you're a mom. So, you know, (laughs) if you have kids, your free time is never real. It's it's very tricky. Free time. It's like, no, what can I do? Yeah for everything this time <laughs> yeah and it, will I lose it at the drop of a hat because someone threw up or you know oh, every day every day mm-hmm. all the time so I'm mm-hmm. um, very gracious to myself and just like every day that I drop my kids off at school I walk with my friend we do a long I mean a quick like we're walking fast for 30 minutes a day mm-hmm. and we make sure to do that every weekday that our kids go to school and then if I don't do anything outside of that 
I may not hit 150 minutes, but I count things like I'm running up and down the stairs all the time, you know, like I'm not sedentary very often. Um, And then, yeah, so I think as far as physically, that's how I'm doing. Mentally, I struggle off and on. Um, I I already had um, anxiety, like I said, uh, some depression. Um, and when I, like, I, I already had a therapist. And um, I had talked to her many, many times before cancer, where she had said, have you ever considered um, anti-anxiety meds? And I was like, no, I don't want to. I'm nursing, you know what you can, it's like all whatever, but that's what happened. And so when they diagnosed me and I said, okay, I'm gonna stop nursing. Then I said, Hey, how about those meds? You know? So I started taking, um, anti-anxiety meds at diagnosis, which I think has really helped stabilize me personally because I already struggled, you know? Um, and I stayed in therapy. So I have the best therapist and, um, yeah, I just stay, I'm very, um, uh, like uh, communal, you know? Um, so I pursue community and made a lot of great friends in the cancer community that, um, were there for each other when we're afraid, you know, we just text each other. Like, um, there's like, what did I, I don't know what, right after I had my surgery, um, my mastectomy, I realized that my sternum is really big. Okay. Which I didn't know. Yeah. So I remember being that? like, what is this? It's a yeah. tumor. Yeah. Um, I think that, I mean, I think that the fact that you're, you know, normalizing and validating the importance of therapy and medications is really big because there's still, no matter how much we talk about it, there's such a stigma around it. Yeah. And I, I think the more we can talk about it, you know, even if one person is motivated to ask, you know, or, or seek out a therapist, I think that's going to be really helpful. And one of the things that I know people struggle with a lot is the fear of recurrence and, Mm -hmm. you know, whatever that looks like, but being in such, in, in the TMBC thrivers and in the, you know, the communities that you're in, how do you handle it or cope or grieve when someone is, diagnosed with a recurrence or someone dies you know how does that being so close-knit and being so enmeshed in it that can't be easy yeah I think uh when someone dies is really hard I mean you can feel it you know through we all check on each other you know and uh uh, and Kelly Thomas tells us for RT I call her RTNBC mama she tells us (laughs) their story is not your story you know the amount and, of times uh, we Kelly all... Thomas has made a cameo on this podcast, like not being on this podcast. I think it's like yeah. a lot. She's the best. She deserves it. She's the best. So um, yeah, so just reminding each other, you know, and um, but but with recurrence, um it's it's hard. I think I don't know. I think my fear it is lessened when I meet people who are living it, you know, mm-hmm. so I, I know a lot of people that have, um, gotten diagnosed de novo or, you know, yeah. right off the bat with stage four and they continue on and they find that they're still themselves, you know, mm-hmm. and, um, and just to know, I mean, when I was diagnosed to my aunt, uh, had metastatic breast cancer and she had it a long time and she lived her life and she raised her kids and she met her grandson and everything, you know? And so just remembering that like cancer isn't the only thing that can happen to us, you know, Mm -hmm. there's so like, we get, I mean, I, I do too. I get so like one, one lane, but life is hard for all of everybody. You know, we all have, um, also death is inevitable. Just a FYI. Yeah. <laughs> you know, one of my favorite authors, Kate Bowler, who, who has stage four, uh, colon cancer. She wrote a book called no cure for being human. And I'm like, that's the best way to say it. So anyway, there's a lot of things that I, that I add to the mind pool to help me, um, 
consider, you know, that recurrence isn't, isn't, um, the worst, isn't the worst thing ever. I mean, it would be hard, but, but we've already proven that we can do hard things, you know, I really like and the people who've come before us with metastatic, the, the people who came before us with metastatic, they, they've proven that it's, it's doable, you know? Yeah. I so. like, I really like that perspective when I had posted something in recurrence the other day and someone commented, and I think this was, so I, I haven't even been able to respond because I don't know how to respond, but it was talking about, you know, are people afraid of recurrence or are they afraid of dying from cancer? Yeah. And mm -hmm. I thought that was just so spot on and, you know, yeah. with, I mean, and I think you can unpack that many different ways because I, I'm, I feel like people are afraid of, from what I hear, you know, having a recurrence and going back on treatment and going back in, into that. Yeah. But is that fear, you know, really more of the dying, you know, so it's, it's, it's just, it was such a comment that really kind of made me think. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good question too. Yeah. I think uh, for me, one of my problems in life is I don't, which I'm probably not alone, but I don't like feeling uncomfortable, you know, <laughs> like, I don't like, you're not, you're I don't like when I have this, yeah. like, even, you know, we were going to do this podcast a while back a couple of weeks ago and I had the stomach bug. It's just the stomach bug. It's going to go away in two days. And I'm like mad. I'm like, I hate feeling like this, you know? Yeah. And so, and that was a callback to um, adriamycin cytoxin days where I felt that way, which was a callback to being pregnant, mm -hmm. which at least when you're pregnant, you get a baby out of the thing, but <laughs> I hate being nauseous, you know? And so sometimes that's sort of a thing I think of it. But again, we just forget like every treatment is different. Every person deals with a different, like there's so many things you can do to handle the symptoms that you have, you know? And so I think I just fear being uncomfortable. Yeah. Like yeah. everyone yeah. does, right? And the fear of the unknown. Yeah. And I think also isolation too. Like I didn't like the part where I was in a global pandemic and I had no white blood cells, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean that, I think, you know, he's talking about how COVID was so hard, but adding cancer and, and the isolation and the fear of on top of that. I mean, that's just unimaginable. And yet people, you know, yeah. get through it because you can do hard things. Yep. That's right. I'll ask, I'll ask you this one question, a piece of advice for someone who is not newly diagnosed. Cause I think there's a ton of that out there, but finishing their kind of active treatment and entering that survivorship space. Yeah. Oh yeah. I forgot to say this. I, I did, I wrote a piece for wildfire that was on their um, Instagram about um, the aftermath. Uh, and I call it, so I call it the cautious, cautiously hopeful after. And um, I say it feels like wading through sludge while people constantly ask you if you're okay now. <laughs> I like that. Because uh, you'll bring it up like I'm awkward leaning and very talkative and I tell everyone my things. And so they'll always say like, oh, but you're okay now? Like a, it's a statement question. Like the answer has to be yes. <laughs> yeah. They don't, they, they, uh, want, they need you to be okay. Cause it makes them uncomfortable to talk about you. Right. They're like, this is you. I don't like this. Yeah. So yeah, I guess what would I, my advice would be, or I think you asked advice. Um, or what I would say is, yeah, it's hard. It's, um, cancer is a part of our lives now, you know, I mean, I think when you're first diagnosed and people even say this to you, like it's one bad year, hopefully it's one bad year, whatever, if you're early stage, you know, and, um, you, it's just funny because it doesn't really pan yeah. out that way, you know? Um, and you can, you can move on from it. You don't have to stay involved with all these things that I'm doing. Um, but just as long as you know they're here, you know, uh, for you, if you need somewhere to fall back. And uh, and I think just remembering that 
thing that we've said a couple of times now that we can do hard things, um, that we have done hard things. And uh, if more happen, we can do them again. Um, and again, we have each other. Um, and yeah, I think we think when treatment ends, it will be just like a big party with a unicorn pinata, but there is a, there is a day for that. If, if treatment does end, there is a day for that. Um, but then afterwards you kind of get a little more scared yeah, <laughs> because you just feel like, Oh shoot, nobody's like killing cancer actively in my body. So who knows what could happen, you know? Um, and, and that is pretty, it's like different than, than I imagined it would be, um, to deal with. But what I think is the best thing to do for all humans everywhere <laughs> is to take one day at a time, you know, to say what's in front of me here today. Um, and not to minimize like worry. Cause obviously that is, um, so common and understandable, but just to see how you can scale back and slow down and look at what's today, um, what's there for you today. And um, I, I mean, I was telling my daughter that because her anxiety was really high. And I was like, hey, you know, what's cool right now, we're together and we're going to see Christmas lights, you know, so let's be here together. And because um, she wanted answers, what's going to happen? Will you die? What I mean, now she's asking me this. And um, I'm like, you know, it's hard to know the answer. You don't know the answer is the thing. So you have today is all to say. Um, and then when I was talking right now, I just remembered that I uh, pressured my oncology team to let me do Signatera. <laughs> I forgot to mention. Yeah, that's a, that, so, is, a, that is a big loaded um, yeah. topic, but I, I think, yeah. I think it's, it's here, you know, and whether there's in Signatera for those who are not familiar is, you know, checking circulating tumor DNA. And it, it's, it's, I think there's so much benefit there, but there's so much unknown, right. And where we live, right. what do we do with that? And I'm hopeful what I tell everybody. And I have some people that, you know, we go over the nuances and I have some people that I will check it on for, for whatever reasons, but um, I think the next five years are going to change how we view, how we look for recurrence, how we evaluate it, what all, you know, because we don't know right now what to do with those results. Right. I know, which is so terrifying. So when I did it, finally, that's why I wanted to bring it up because I was thinking about it in, in the question of survivorship. That, that scan anxiety that we talk about, well, it's six weeks long. <laughs> <laughs> because you now wait you're waiting that it takes oh my god to get the results and then and then like then what right right yeah like mine said zero which was a, I mean honestly I was like if it said anything else I don't know how I would have yeah. handled that you know mm -hmm. so and how are it's you a doing scary repeatedly or it was a one-time thing or are you doing it every so often I think I'm not sure because uh I just did it I got the results sometime in December, I think, or November. Mm -hmm. Must've been November. Yeah. But um, I think they said I was doing it three every three months, but my next oncology appointment is tomorrow. So yeah, we'll find out, I guess. Yeah. Stay tuned. Yeah. Also, my oncologist doesn't know about my tattoo. So I'm excited to like strip. What, it's what, huge. What's the tattoo of? So, um, so the breast cancer community solidified to me the idea of um the oneness of humanity and um so i thought a lot about it and decided to get um so it has uh, two bouquet kind of things not like yeah just flowers um off-centered and uh e there's one flower to represent each um birth month you know so every month has a birth flower is what yeah. i'm trying to say so it's, there's one of each to represent. And then um, it has a lyric from my favorite band, which um, just stopped touring after 21 years. And I've been following them since I was 16, which is a long time. Um, and so they have a lyric that says, you're everyone else. 
And so I got that those words tattooed with uh, all the flowers. Yeah. I love that. It's pretty cool. I like it a lot. It makes me happy when I see it. And also a good friend of mine um, from college tattooed it on to me because she's an amazing artist. Yeah. <laughs> nice, like full circle moment. Well, yeah, it's really cool. Thank you so much for being here. Where can listeners connect with you if they want to follow you, talk to you, all of that good stuff? Yeah, please talk to me. I like it. Um, I am at Aaron Lee Perkins on Instagram. And then I just made a sub stack because apparently that's a better way for writers um, to get people to subscribe to their writing. So my sub stack is um, Aaron Lee Perkins .substack.com. Um, And those are the best ways, I think. Perfect. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, for listening to my conversation with Erin. I found her story and her words so powerful, and I, I hope you did, too. I had to take a break for a few weeks for recording podcast episodes uh, due to work and, you know, the craziness with the holidays and December and everything. And, you know, when we recorded this episode, I was just reminded by how meaningful these conversations are and how much they bring and and I know help others who are going through similar time you know similar situations and I'm, I'm so grateful to Erin for being open and vulnerable and sharing her story you can find Erin on Instagram at Erin Lee Perkins which has a link to her blog to her Substack, um, and to a lot of her writing as well. So definitely check that out. You can find me at Dr. Toplinski on all of the social media platforms. Um, for those of you who are interested in more bonus, um, especially solo podcast episodes, I urge you to check me out on Patreon, uh, where we have really a wonderful community. And finally, if you enjoyed this episode or any others of the Interlude podcast, I'm always grateful if you can take a moment to leave a rating and review for the show for the Interlude podcast, because that helps me to grow the show and to bring it to new listeners. Thank you again for listening, and I will see you soon. Thank you.